If you have your Bibles, go straight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to jump right into the text this morning. So fire up the cell phones. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. There should be right in the uh, seat back in front of you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 starts with this famous word, preacher's favorite word, finally. If you've been in church a while, anytime a preacher, a pastor, an apostle like Paul says the word finally, it means absolutely nothing. It means buckle up. If you're there and it's 40 minutes in and the pastor goes, and finally, what he's telling you is, hey, pay attention, I got some more stuff to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 is maybe about halfway through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and Paul says, and finally. So when we get about 40 minutes into the sermon and I say, finally, don't turn off your phones, don't start checking the scores, just buckle up. Finally, just signifies that we're actually jumping into a new section in this letter. So most of these New Testament books that we have in the Bible were originally letters, and they were written to churches for specific reasons, and they were written in a specific way, which was much like the way that most letters were written back in that day, in Paul's day. Most of the New Testament letters are longer than the non-Bible letters that we have, that we can look at, that were from that day, uh, but, but they generally have a lot of the same elements. And so what Paul is doing here is in chapter 4, verse 1, he's signifying to all of us and to his original recipients of this letter, hey, we're going to start talking about things a little bit differently now. And here's how it's gone. For the first three chapters, just kind of by way of review, for the first three chapters, he's been talking about things that are true of them as a, a people, as a group. So there's been a lot about their relationship, a lot about his thankfulness for them, his thankfulness for their faithfulness, his encouragement in their walk, uh, their example, their heart, their love, their testimony, the friendship that they've shared together. And these are all indicative of some things that are true about this group of people, the Thessalonian church. This is what are called the indicatives. Sometimes in some uh, New Testament letters, when Paul writes, he'll write uh, the first half of, of some of his letters, and he'll give what are called theological indicatives. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, it's the most famous of all of those. And, and he says in Romans 1 through 11, there's tons of theology. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And so he refers back to all of the theology that he's unpacked. And then he says, now go and live this certain way. That's just a normal way that they wrote back in that day. And Paul's doing that here with the Thessalonians, in fact. For the first three chapters, he's talked about some relationship, relational indicatives, some things that are true of them, some things that are true of, really should be true of all Christians and how they interact with each other and follow the faith. In chapter 4, verse 1, through the end of the book, we're going to get lots and lots and lots of imperatives, lots and lots of things that we do, ways that we act, ways that we think. And in the Christian life, the imperatives, the do's and don'ts, are always grounded in the indicatives. This is so important for gospel-based understanding and actions. And what happens often in Christian circles is that we get a list of do's and don'ts. Maybe you went to church as a kid and you haven't been back for a while, or maybe you've done the Christian life for a long time and you've seen it as like kind of this list of do's and don'ts. And good Christians do these things and don't do these things. 
When we don't ground these imperatives, the things that we do and don't do, we don't ground those in the indicatives, the things that, that are true of us, it just becomes legalism. So starting today and for the next few weeks, we'll be talking about real practical walk-the-walk kind of stuff. I'll give you four of them today, real practical things. But whenever we preach action here, we want to make sure that we understand that, that we're not just shooting for behavior modification, Right? If you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. I hope you just listen and hear what God's Word has to say about living for the Lord and continue to explore your faith. But what I don't want you to think is that by some sort of behavior modification, then I get a right relationship with God. That the indicative, what is true of us as people, as Christians, our relationship with God, that's always the ground and the basis for the things that we do and the way that we live. And this is an occasional letter where Paul was writing because of some specific circumstances. And here's what we're going to see. That the Thessalonian church was a good church. It wasn't like the Corinthians. It wasn't like the Galatians. This was a solid church with good people and good Christians. But there's still room for growth. When Timothy had been there with the Thessalonians, he came back to Paul and gave a report. He gave a real encouraging report. But there were still some things that they needed to work on. And we're going to see what some of those things are today. And at least one of them is going to kind of shock you a little bit, right? We're going to squirm a little bit for a minute. And you're like, that church had a problem with that? Well, apparently. And the important news for us then as a church is to say, like, we may be a good church, but there's always room for growth, right? There's always room for us to continue to grow in our walk with the Lord. This idea of in the meantime comes from the idea that in all of these sermons and in each of the texts that we have looked at so far, there's been some indication that they were thinking about the return of the Lord. They were thinking about the second coming of the Lord. Church, when I started this series, the, the situation that, was that is happening currently in Israel wasn't happening. When we started this series a few weeks ago... People's minds are even more geared toward end times in the last five weeks than they were when we started this. People are thinking about the end times. And as I've said and will continue to say, when we think about end times theology, it's always presented in such a way that our understanding of the end times impacts the way we live right now. That there are ways that we live in the meantime that are faithful to our looking forward to the return of Christ. So this morning, we will get really, really practical with four different ways that we walk the walk in the meantime. Verses 1 through the first half of verse 3 will give us the first of those. And we'll learn about walking in the Word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There are three aspects toward progress in the Christian life. There, there's the past aspect. There's the aspect where someone proclaims to you the truth of God's word, right? You're walking in one direction. Someone comes up and, and proclaims to you, whether it's a preacher or a teacher or a family member, and they say, this is what God's word says, and they proclaim the word of God to you. When that happens, you have a choice. We can either accept that as God's word and, and follow it and walk forward, or we can reject it and say, no, I think I'll go in my own direction. And Paul says, you received how to walk, how to please the Lord. My job as a pastor, you guys, is to open 
God's word and tell you his way for you to walk. And Paul says, you received it. And then not only did you receive it, you, were, you walked in it. You did it. And then, future tense, he says, continue to do so more and more. And I hit on this last week, but again, progress in the Christian life is like growth of a child. As your child grows and continues to grow in a healthy way, you have a great picture of what it looks like for Christian growth. That you start out as a spiritual infant, a little baby. Like Paul and, and other New Testament writers use this as an analogy, as a little baby. And then people help you understand God's Word, and you grow in God's Word, and they help you understand a little bit more, and then you grow some more, and it's just this continued process, and you grow up. And the idea is that we're supposed to continue to grow throughout the course of our lives, just like a child grows in their relationship with their family and their relationship with the world around them. That it's past, present, and future. Notice in verse 1, we ask and urge you that as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. That the idea behind growth is walking to please God. And here's what I want to point out, that this is more than just doctrinal affirmations. One of the things that I, I get nervous about when we talk about Christian growth is spiritual bobblehead doll syndrome. You know that one? You know what a bobblehead doll looks like? Tiny body, real big head. There are a lot of Christian bobblehead dolls in churches, right? Tiny body, big head. Look at all the stuff I know. Look at all the theology that I can argue. Look at all of my positions and all of these different things. Yeah, but you're a jerk to your family, right? You're not nice to your neighbors. And what we're talking about when we talk about spiritual growth is more than just doctrinal affirmation. It's how we live and how we walk and how we do the things that we do. So in, in verse 1, he talks about that. And, and verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Everybody wants to know, what's the will of God, right? Teenage boy wants to know, what's the will of God? Blonde or brunette? Lord, help me understand it, right? College student, God, what's the, what's the will of God in my life? Should I be a doctor or a lawyer, right? Everybody wants to know, what's the will of God? When Scripture talks about the will of God. It gives us some real specific things, and it usually is in accordance with obeying God and just being faithful and following Him. And He gives us one of those here. When He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that's one of those big theological words that's actually really important for our everyday life. To be sanctified, sanctification, the idea behind that word is holiness, consecration, being set apart for something. And there's a couple ways, a couple different ways that word in the original language can be used. At, at one point, in some places, even in Thessalonians, it's used as what's called positional sanctification, meaning this is what's true of you in Christ. Another place in the New Testament says you were washed, you were sanctified, meaning that this is true of you in a positional sense. But more often in the New Testament, it's used of what we call progressive sanctification, the process of growth, the process of continuing to look more like Jesus. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, God wants us to continue to grow. Verse 2 is key for how we grow. It says this, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 makes an interesting statement. 
and talking about spiritual gifts. It says, if you serve, do it in a certain way. And it says, for the one who speaks, let him speak as if speaking the oracles of God. As a preacher, it's probably one of the most heavy verses for me. Because it says that every time I stand up here and I open God's word, that I'm not speaking behalf, on behalf of myself or this church or on behalf of our leadership, or I'm not speaking on behalf of anything other than the Lord. That's a heavy weight. We believe that extends to every Bible study leader, every Sunday school teacher, that when we're understanding and proclaiming God's word, it, we're speaking the oracles of God. In other words, when you hear me speaking, if I'm speaking in a way that accurately and properly reflects God's word, this is God speaking to us and helping us understand his word. Now, what I am absolutely not saying, Catholic, is that I speak on behalf of God. And so I can put the text down over here and I can talk and make proclamations. And you have to listen to those proclamations that's coming from me. What I'm saying is this, and I told this the first service, that as I open God's word, or Lauren, as he's, Pastor Lauren, as he's in there and he's opening God's word in, in the workshop time, or anybody else who preaches and teaches, as we open God's word, as we faithfully study it, as we seek to interpret it and apply it to us as a church, as we do that in accordance with God's will, as we do that in accordance with what God has designed his word for, then we're speaking on behalf of God. The second I get away from this is the second that I'm walking outside of what God desires for me. And so part of what that means is this, is that God's word is how spiritual growth happens. But each of you, as you listen to me, have a responsibility as well. In the book of Acts, the Berean Christians were called worthy. Do you know why? Because when, the, when Paul came and he taught, they didn't just like say, well, Paul said it, so I guess we'll believe it. It sounds weird, but we'll take it, right? That they tested everything that Paul said. And I'm asking you as your pastor to test the things that I say. I use a lot of words up here on a Sunday. Amen? Yeah, you do. Woo! Finally. No. <laughs> but what I want here at our church is I don't want you to just accept everything that I say as the Word of God. I want you to be it with, with your nose in the Scripture while we're here. And I want you to be listening to it and thinking about it and discerning it. I want you to go home and think about it, talk about it with other people. If you've got questions and you're like, man, you said that and that sounds weird or you said that and I'm not sure about it, I want you to come and talk to me, email me, talk with other people about it. I'm just a guy. I do as much as work and as much homework as I can and try as hard as I can to get this right. But what I believe about spiritual growth is this, is that when Paul says, you know what instructions we gave you, and some of your translations say, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, is that God has called us to open his word and that the spirit of God uses the word of God to grow the people of God. And the only way that that's going to happen is if together if we have our Bibles open and that we grow through the word of God. There's no growth without God's word. And so on each of these four points this morning, I'll give you some real practical things. And the practical thing today is this, like, how much time do you spend in God's Word? And this isn't a pastor with a guilt trip. What it is, is someone who cares about our spiritual growth. And I know that most of you, if you're Christians, you would say, like, I have a desire to grow. And I will say, you can't grow without God's Word. 
I don't think you can grow the way that God wants you to grow just by coming and listening to a sermon on Sunday and then walking away and having no other interaction with God's word throughout the course of the week. Okay? I can't bear that much responsibility. The things that I'm going to say, as we all know, aren't that good. This is to get us started. So there's lots of ways that we go about interacting with God's word. We have that sermon supplement that we talk about all the time. It's just another way for you to take this message and interact with it on your own or with a few other people and keep thinking about it. How does it apply? In addition to that, some exercises that are in there so that you can look at the next week's scripture passage and think about that and study it. Study it. And then when you come in and sit on Sunday, what I'm saying right now, you've already had exposure to. That's going to help you listen to God's word better. In addition to that, maybe you have like personal, individual devotion time, a study guide, read through the Bible in a year, use an app, whatever it is. But those times where you're growing in God's Word, because church, growth doesn't happen without God's Word. So Paul says we need to be walking in the Word. The second one will come in verse, the end of verse 3 through verse 8. And I said at least one of these points is going to make us squirm a little today, right? So here's a squirmy one. Prepare your hearts to squirm. Paul's going to talk about walking in sexual integrity. Verses 3 through 8. And as I promised the first service, I promise that I realize that there are a variety of people in here. And a variety of age groups in here. We're not going to say anything that's like weird or, you know, you don't have to squirm too much. But isn't it interesting that he says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification and then he applies that to a very specific topic, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, so God's will specifically in this particular passage, you say, what's God's will for my life? Specifically, walking in sexual integrity. Now this isn't all of God's will. Again, there are plenty of places in the New Testament where Paul or other authors will say, this is the, the will of God, dot, dot, dot. But you could draw a picture of what God wants for us in that. But in this particular instance, when he's going to talk to the Thessalonians about the will of God, the big thing that he's going to talk to them about is walking in sexual integrity. And here's what's crazy. This is a church that Paul was proud of. But he's writing to them about this because apparently it was an issue. I'll unpack this a little bit more. But you see, even good churches can get into bad problems, right? Even good churches can get into bad spots and bad places. And so he says, walk in sexual, in in sexual integrity. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is two words in our Bibles, but it's one word in the original, and it's a word that most of you have heard. Our English word comes from this Greek word. The Greek word is porneia. Okay? It sounds familiar, doesn't it? We just took a Greek word and made it mean one specific thing in English. Now, when you think about that particular thing in English, you think about like one thing, right? It's usually something to do with watching something. In that day, that word, just think about like a big garbage dumpster, okay? You got a big sexual garbage dumpster. All the bad sexual stuff goes into the dumpster. There's one thing that goes on the table, okay? There's one thing that's okay, That's God's design for sexuality. That's one biological man, one biological woman, 
I probably have to even like define that further, right? Who identify as a man and a woman, who are married to each other, right? So God has a design. We did a whole sermon on it back at the beginning of the year. If you haven't listened to it, go back to, to our Genesis Foundation series. They did a whole sermon, God's design for marriage and sexuality. That was okay. Everything else went into the dumpster of porneia, went into the bad spot, okay? And they had weird stuff. I won't tell you about them because you'd squirm even more, but you can imagine. We have weird stuff today. All the bad stuff went in, and it was the bad stuff about what you watched, and the bad stuff about how you thought, and the bad stuff about how you acted, and all the bad stuff went into that dumpster. And he said, stay away from all, stay out of the dumpster. Why are you dumpster diving? You don't need to eat out of the dumpster. You got great food on the table, right? You don't need to go to the dumpster. But everybody was going back to the dumpster and back to the dumpster and back to the dumpster. And not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Right? And in that day, here was what was crazy. As he'll talk about uh, in here some more, you understand the culture. They, they, actually, they actually worshiped sex as a god. So in all of these big cities, many of you are probably familiar with it, they had temples to Greek and he, Greek goddesses especially. And the way that you worshipped is they had cult prostitutes, male and female. And you went to the temple and you worshipped. And that was part of their idea of what religion was. And here's the thing, it was expected, right? Especially if men, it was expected to go to the temple and worship because you appease the gods and then the gods take care of the culture. And if you want culture to go well and to be prosperous, you keep the gods appeased. And one of the ways of appeasing the gods is going to the temple and worshipping. And Christians come along and they say, no, 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 that's the garbage dumpster. That's not worship, that's the garbage dumpster. And Christians then said, no, we're not going to do that. And because of it, they were ostracized. Wait, Christians were ostracized for their sexual beliefs? That's unprecedented, right? Church, it's been happening for 2,000 years that the sexual ethos of culture in, in first century Rome and in first century Ephesus and the first century ancient Near East is not that much different than the 21st century in, in first world countries like the United States of America. And the sexual desensitization of culture is rampant. And here's the difference. They went to a temple to do it. We do it on our cell phones, right? They went to a temple to, to worship we worship sex in the same way. We just call it Netflix, right? You say, well, that's kind of pushing it. Is it really? Because in that day, the sexual norm, like what everybody just expected was sexual license. Like my body, my choice, isn't this brand new idea? Because sexual license was just the norm in that day. And what Paul's going to say in these words that he's going to give them in these verses is that one of the most important ways that Christians stand out from all of that is through sexual integrity. That the way forward from any kind of sexual immorality is sexual integrity. And he says it like this in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body. You see, rather than self-control, sexual license was the rule of the day in that day. Rather than self-control today, it's my body, I do what I want. If it feels good, do it. All of those things are true today as well. And he says that each one of you, this is the will of God, by the way, right? 
God, what, what, what's your will for my life? That each of you control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who know God. We talk about feelings around here. And we talk about feelings being a good sail for your ship, but not a very good rudder. And unfortunately, from a sexual perspective, everything's about the sail and there's no rudder of conviction. And he says that the Gentiles, that was his way of saying the outside world, like that, that for them, it was all about feelings. It was feelings first. When he says passions, he's just like, I feel like I want this. How many families have been divorced because somebody felt that they wanted something different? How many people are living in sin and promiscuity because they're being driven by their feelings with no rudder of conviction? And he says that none of you live in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles. Verse 6, man, is going to shock you. This is a good church, okay? The church in Thessalonica. Like we know Corinth, Christians gone wild. B bad stuff, right? But this is the good church. Look at verse 6. <laughs> that no one transgress and wrong... Oh, that's awkward. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You know what that means? In all probability... They were sinning sexually with each other. I don't mean to be crude, but in all probability, they were going to each other's houses for more than just church. He's, he's writing this in response to something that uh, Timothy told him when he showed up. And he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The Lord is an avenger. See, Tony Stark's not the only avenger. God, the Lord, the best avenger. Who's my favorite avenger? The Lord. Amen. I'm going to get a tattoo. Just kidding. As we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you, listen, church, and I'll just touch down on this and we'll take right back off, but we need to be careful in our relationships with each other here. We need to be careful in our relationships with each other in our small groups and in our ministry teams and here at the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ need to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's in love that's in propriety, that's in discretion across the board, okay? I don't want to make a big deal about this because it's not a big deal here, but we know churches where that, this has happened and has caused massive splits. And if the church in Thessalonica could fall prey to something like this, let's not think that the church in Puyallup couldn't. Verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That word holiness is the same word used above sanctification, the same idea. And he's saying this, that sexual integrity was one of the fundamental marks that set them apart from their culture. Sexual integrity was one of the ways that people looked at them and said they're different. And it wasn't always good. Like People didn't always look at them and say, wow, they're different, that's so amazing. The chances are, as Christians, as we practice sexual integrity, it doesn't mean everybody's going to look at us and be like, wow, that's amazing, I want that. In fact, they may do the exact opposite. But God has called us to be set apart in that because you know what? When our marriages stay together and theirs don't, there's a reason for it. When we're following the Lord and experiencing what God wants us to follow as we pursue sexual integrity and other people aren't experiencing the same peace, that's called testimony. 
One of the most significant pieces of our Christian testimony is that integrity. And to be real specific, to be set apart in our culture today includes how we act. It definitely, obviously includes how we act. It includes how we talk. Right? This includes how you talk when you're at work, when you're hanging with your buddies, when you're with your friends, the stuff that you post on social. It includes how we dress. And this is guys and gals in our culture today, right? Modesty isn't just a female thing anymore, by the way. But it includes how we dress. One of the statements that we use at the Imhoff home is just because I can doesn't mean I should, right? Modesty is a big deal. Peter talks about it. Timothy talks about it. Like, modesty is a big deal because it sets us apart. Yeah, but the outfit is so cute. Yeah. It's also so sinful, right? So just being wise in the way that we dress and the way that we conduct ourselves, that, that's a sexual integrity thing. The way that we think. And this last one, the way that we watch. I firmly believe that one of the, that, that probably the, the biggest gate that needs to be kept in, with Christians in terms of this sexual integrity thing is the stuff that we allow into our eyes, which goes into our mind, which goes into our heart, which comes out of our actions. Be real specific. I believe that when you look at the history of my Netflix account and somebody who's unsaved, they should be a difference. I believe that sexual integrity has to do with my browser history and my Netflix history. My sexual integrity has to do with the, the texts that are on my phone, and so do yours. And unfortunately... For so many Christians, we think, well, I'm not going to act the actions, but I can talk and I can dress and I can think and I can watch in the same way. That's not sexual integrity. A sexual integrity might mean that I don't get to binge watch the show that I want to watch. It might mean that I don't get to follow the person that I, that I want to follow on social media. It might, in fact, mean getting rid of social media or some of it or putting some blocks on certain things. It might mean accountability partners. Because, man, all that stuff is related. When we think about sexual integrity, you're like, well, I'm being faithful physically to my spouse, or I'm single and I'm like, you know, doing what I'm supposed to. But how's your mind? How's your heart? How do all those things work together? Because that's all a piece of, of sexual integrity. Some of us are like, is it really that important? Well, verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Paul saying, yeah, you can ignore this, but you're not ignoring me. You're actually ignoring the Lord. And remember, the Lord is an avenger, and He's the most amazing avenger. You don't ignore the avenger. Later, he would write to the Corinthians, as I said, they had some serious issues. To the Corinthians, he would write, flee from sexual immorality. Same word, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Some of you have heard the back half of that before and didn't realize that the context of, of you're not your own, you're bought with a price, glorify God in your body, like that, the context of that is sexual integrity right? That the Holy Spirit lives within you. It's actually that serious. And so I would say this, 
Like if, if sexual integrity is something that you struggle with or have struggled with in any way, this church, at least over the last 15 years since Pastor Lauren has been here, I know, has been a place of safety, not a place of embarrassment and judgment. If you have struggled or you are struggling, this is a place where you can get help discreetly, that you can get help for real, that it's not going to be a place of judgment. You come and you talk to me, you say, I'm wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with that. Like We want to provide help in the right context. If you're a gal, we have some ladies who are qualified in biblical counseling that will take you and will help and discreetly walk with you through that. If you're a guy, you got myself and Pastor Lauren, and I know of at least one other man who's walked through this who's happy to walk through that with you. If you're willing to ask for help, we're willing to help, especially in this specific area, because it's that important. Walking the walk is about like real stuff. Walking in the word, sexual integrity. Number three, verses nine and 10, it's about walking in brotherly love. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Ironically, that word, uh, those words brotherly love, that, that's the word Philadelphia. If you, if you spend any time on the East Coast, you understand the irony. If you've driven through Philadelphia, I grew up close to Philadelphia. There's no brotherly love there. It's the city of brotherly shove. Interestingly, their football team has now created a move called the tush push or the brotherly shove. If you're not familiar with it, ask the guys down front. They'll explain it. They may even show you later after church. I'm not sure, right? But brotherly love, we always talk about agape love, self-sacrificial love, and those kind of things. When Jesus talks, you know, uh, in John 13, and he says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another, those kinds of things. We talk about agape love. But, but when Paul talks here, he uses this word on purpose because it's a familial love. It, this was the word that they used when they were talking about the love that you had for your other family members. So when Christians use it, we adopted that to talk about our Christian family. What we all know is this, that love characterizes healthy families, right? You don't look at a family who's arguing and fighting and bickering and at each other and hates each other and be like, that is a healthy family. You know what? They all hate each other. You know, Thanksgiving is like a UFC match. That's, I want to be like that. That is so healthy because we know that love characterizes healthy families. You know what else we know? Families are messy. Is your family messy, anyone? No, I'm just kidding. Two or three people, wow. <laughs> right? Yeah, families are messy. And extended families are messy. Extended families get tough and tricky. Immediate families get messy and tough and tricky. But here's what's so cool about that. Is that a f the family, your nuclear family, your extended family, but especially in this case, the Christian family, the church, is a great place where we can sharpen our spiritual growth and our spiritual walk by walking in brotherly love with each other. If love were easy, everybody'd do it, right? If love were just a feeling, we'd be all set. When love includes, like, we just got this amazing new bathroom, guys, and in two weeks, Jim Barry's out in the porta potty again, and he's gonna do it, and he's gonna be like, love for those ladies, right? I'm going to post this verse right there on the porta potties, right? Brotherly love. 
But brotherly love is like doing things because you care about the other person. Making those sacrifices because you love and you care about the other person. Every time I'm deferential towards somebody else and give them the benefit of the doubt, I'm showing brotherly love. You know how important it is in a church of 300, 350 people to have a little bit of deference? Hey, you're in my seat. Just kidding, right? That's my parking place. You took the last maple bar? Come on. Okay, that was too far, right? Love's got limits, easy, right? But, man, we have tons of awesome opportunities to show brotherly love for each other here in a growing church. A few years ago, we did a sermon series. It was called No Gack. Anybody remember that one? Let's just see. Anybody know? Okay, it's fine. My wife does. (laughs) No Gack was no grumbling and complaining. It was like a several-week sermon series. We had signs up all over the church. Some of you are remembering now, right? No Gack. Did you know a a great way to show brotherly love is just no Gack? Stop the Gack. Maybe we'll get buttons made. I'm not sure. But if we could just grumble and complain less about each other here at church, man, we'd be showing some brotherly love. Now, here's what I love about the Thessalonians is he says this. He says, for that indeed, verse 10, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In other words, they were getting it right. And he says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And I feel like I can echo that sentiment here at this church. We don't have tons of counseling cases where it's like people just can't get along and they're fighting and they're angry and they're upset. But we do sometimes get the chirping, right? And sometimes as pastors, we do the chirping. (laughs) Sometimes we need to remember, we need to show a little more brotherly love. We have these great opportunities to show real brotherly and sisterly love for each other in real specific ways. The last one he shares in verses 11 and 12, is walking respectably toward outsiders. He says this, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. As he's been talking about this church and how they interact with each other and how they care for each other and how they walk with integrity toward each other, he then focuses the attention toward how do other people think about them? How do those on the outside think about them? First Peter chapter 2 says it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the outsiders, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Real practical ways that as we walk the walk, as we do what God has called us to do, that we walk respectably toward outsiders. When he uses those three clauses in verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands. The the work with your own hands piece is going to come up a few times actually in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And the idea was this, that as they thought that the end times were coming, or maybe it already come, and they were looking forward to that and expecting that, that, that basically they just stopped working and depended on government aid to care for them. And they're like, well, the Lord's going to be here anytime, so we're just going to live our life, and we'll live off of government aid, and we won't work. That's a really bad testimony toward outsiders. Other people were looking at some of the Christians saying, man, their theology causes them to be lazy. I don't want any piece of that. 
And they were able to make disparaging remarks about the Christians because of something that they were doing that was, was not in accordance with God's word. And Paul says, stop it. In addition to that, when he says that they are to live quietly and to mind their own affairs, he's talking about like going about life in the community in such a way that is respectable. He's not saying don't get involved in the community. He's not saying don't, you know, just live at your own house and, and drive into your garage and close the door. But as we go out there and as we work and as we live and as we do the things we do, even as we dissent, right? Sometimes we have to dissent from government. We have to dissent from other things that are out there. But do we do so respectably, right? When I live my Christian life, what does my neighbor think about me? What does my buddy at work think about me? What do the, the people at my kids' sporting events think about me? They say, in all of those things, we should live respectably. I like what one commentator said. It's like this. Christians should work and conduct themselves in the community in such a way that they received respect and not censure from outsiders. They should be regarded as excellent members, excellent members of the surrounding society, with their conduct being a key element of their testimony. There's lots of people who know all the truth and know all the doctrine and have all their theological ducks in a row. And they're jerks for Jesus, right? Their neighbors don't want to hang out with them. People at work are like, that person is a, totally annoying and a real jerk. And he's saying, we want to have our theological ducks in a row, but that needs to come out in the way that we live and we need to live and walk respectably and respectfully. Someone said it like this about churches. They said, if you were to leave, would your community grieve? Right? If PCBC just decided, you know what, this building's small and old, we've got a great new kitchen, we've only got one new bathroom, forget it, we're going somewhere else. How would the neighbors feel? Would they be like, oh man, that's a shame, because that church really was a, a good staple in this community. Or would they be like, yes, a few acres on the corner of 9th and 14th, let's go. Right? If, you were, if we were as a church to leave, would our community grieve? But what about this? If you stuck a for sale sign up in front of your house, what are your neighbors thinking? They're thinking, man, that's going to be tough. Are they thinking, woohoo! Christians are out of here, right? They gave tracks at Halloween. Give a candy bar with the track. If you're going to do the track at the full size Costco bar. And live respectfully in your community. I mean, I think, like, if I told my, my coworkers, not me, obviously, here at church, but if you told your coworkers, hey, man, I, got, I just put in my two weeks, how are people feeling about that? All of that helps us to understand, like, what do outsiders think about you and the way that you live out your faith, the way that I live out my faith? We've all got work to do in that area. We walk in the Word. We walk in sexual integrity. We walk with brotherly love. But the way that we live toward outsiders makes a difference too in walking respectably toward outsiders. So, finally, really, finally, a few of you are nervous laughter, like, oh gosh, really? It's already 10 after. Here's what I want to close this morning. If you're a Christian, I want you to look on the screen and I want you to see the four things that are up there and I just want you to pick something. I want you to pick something that you're like, this is something that, I, that the Spirit of God is telling me, like, I need to grow in this. Maybe there's two or three or four somethings, but pick something right now. And I'm going to pray that God will help us to apply these things to our lives. 
And I want you to think of what that thing is. And as the Spirit of God impresses that on your heart, I want you to pray that He'll give you some action steps to take this week to really apply this really practical, specific stuff. And maybe there's something as small as like, you know what, I need to get in the Word some more. Maybe it's as big as, you know what, I need to go confess some sexual sin. Or maybe it's something somewhere in the middle. But I would challenge you to think about application. If you're not a Christian, as I said before, we really are glad and honored that you would like show up and listen to me rant for 45 minutes, right? But what I want you to know is that we don't change our activities until we change our identity. And changing your identity means going from being someone who is far from God to becoming a Christian and being, having a right relationship with God. It means admitting what God says about us and our lives, that, that we're sinners and that our sin separates us from having a relationship with God and that there's nothing we can do to work our way back to that, that all the good stuff that I would do would mean nothing. But that Jesus, as God, came and died in our place to pay the price for our sins, that he rose again so that we could have victory over Satan and sin. And you accept Christ as your Savior. You change your identity. You become a Christian. You change your identity. And then you start to change your activity and you start to grow. So if you're not a Christian, man, I challenge you to become a Christian today by placing your faith in Christ. And if you do that, I'd encourage you to talk to me afterwards so I can give you a little resource that'll help you start walking the walk as well. So let's stand together this morning. I'm going to pray, again, asking the Spirit of God to help us apply this. I want you to pray for yourself as I'm praying as well. God, we love your word. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that your Holy Spirit challenges and convicts us in accordance with your word. And I pray that that would be continuing to take place right now. As we've been exposed to your word and these very specific things that you had the Apostle Paul write down, God, as I've tried to be faithful to what your text has to say, I pray that you would continue to challenge each of us, myself, everyone who's out here, the people who are listening online, those who will watch this later this week, God, that you would challenge us with that area or those areas where you desire for us to continue to grow specifically in our relationship with you. God, for that person who's here who just hasn't been spending time in your word and is not seeing the growth that they want, that you would help them to find real ways to, to be involved in your word. For the person who's here, God, who's been involved in one way or another in not walking with sexual integrity, that you would provide the courage for them to take the next step to move forward. God, for all of us, we need to grow in our love for each other, but maybe somebody's here who is convicted specifically about their love for other Christians. Challenge them. God, the same goes with our walk with outsiders. We trust you to challenge us and convict us, and God, I pray that you'd give us the boldness to live that out. Uh, and take those steps today. We thank you for the time to be together and the encouragement that it is to be part of this church family. In Jesus' name, amen.